0: Well, good morning again, church. Uh, my name's Alec. I'm the pastor here. If you're new, or if you just forgot and it's been too long and you can't ask anymore, my name's Alec. You also might not recognize me because I did get a haircut this week. Uh, our oldest son, Rhett, we have been trying to get him to get a haircut because uh, now he's in kindergarten and so he has back. He has like school pictures this week, and it was like, hey, Rhett, you need to get a haircut, and he's like, well, I want to grow my hair long because Dad has long hair, so. That was a bit of a discussion. We all got haircuts. It was great. This has nothing to do with today, other than the fact that I'm just addressing it. We're continuing our new series today uh, through the book of Acts called This is the Way. Last week I mentioned how, unlike normal series, when we go through a book of the Bible, we usually go like verse at a time or chapter at a time. But with this book of the Bible, we're going through location at a time. So last week... Uh, We are in Judea, and that spans chapters 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 7. Today we are in Samaria, and that's just chapter 8. We are going to learn about a man named Philip today. But before we can really talk about Philip, we do have to jump back into chapter 7 and learn about a man named Stephen, who I mentioned very briefly last week, but we just didn't have the time to dive into it. Stephen is actually first introduced in chapter 6 alongside Philip as uh, part of the seven men that were chosen to oversee food and money distribution for the early church. You see, they, this early church was already persecuted. Before they were imprisoned and killed, the families would, was, were cutting ties. And they were you know, thrown out on the streets because they believed in Jesus Christ. And so they gathered together and they sold property and they gave money together And so the apostles and disciples were like, we need people to oversee the needs of everybody here, and we can't do it all. So they gathered, they appointed seven men, and Stephen was one of them, and Philip was another. And so we learn about Stephen right off at the beginning of chapter 6, starting in verse 8. I'm just going to read a little bit here, because here we read about why Stephen was arrested for his faith. Uh, and how he was brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. So we're going to read verses 8 to 15. It says Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We'll pause there. Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, and that's the council of these religious leaders. And the accusation brought against him was the same that the religious leaders brought against Jesus to to condemn him. We read that in Matthew chapter 26. This group falsely accuses Stephen of wanting to change Moses' customs because they knew that those who were on the council, on the Sanhedrin, believed only in Moses' laws. They were called the Sadducees, and they ran this uh, Sanhedrin council. So then this council asked Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Now, he could have just backtracked right away and been like, no, 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 that's not what I said. I was actually trying to say this instead. They misheard. He doesn't do any of that. He launches into this long speech about Israel's relationship with God. And he goes back into Old Testament history and he shows that the Jews had constantly rejected God's message and his prophets and that this council had rejected the Messiah, God's true son. And in this long message... Stephen brings out three points essentially. The first point they kind of agree upon okay, Israel's history is the history of God acting in the world. And Sanhedrin's like, true. And then he goes and he says, people worship God before there was a temple because God does not live in a temple. And they're starting to go, mm, this is going against what we believe. And then his third point, he says that Jesus' death was just one more example of Israel's rebellion against, and rejection of God. And when he finishes this, they are upset. As he gets to the end of his speech, they are mad and furious at him. But he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't give an excuse or a reason, but he takes the chance to, and seizes the opportunity to summarize his teachings about Jesus. Stephen was accusing these religious leaders of failing to obey God's laws, which is the same thing that Jesus did when he was on trial. Stephen's review of Jewish history gives a a clear testimony of God's faithfulness and sovereignty despite the continued failures of his chosen people. The end of Stephen's speech is recorded in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 58. I'm just going to read it here. It says, Stephen Stephen finishes by saying, and I just imagine he's just screaming at this point at these religious leaders, and he's calling them out. He's saying, You stiff-necked people! Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are like your ancestors. You resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And this, at this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their lungs, and they all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's an interesting last line there. It's our introduction to Saul, who we later will read about in chapter 9. But Saul was a Pharisee, and he was a Roman citizen, and so he was high up. And he sat there, and he approved of their stoning, of their killing of him from both. He kind of oversaw both the church and the state in some some ways. And he approved of it, and the witnesses laid their coats at his feet as a way to kind of say, we're supporting you here. But this council was so upset that they picked up stones to throw at him because in their custom, uh, when you were going against God's word and when you were blasphemous in that ways, the punishment was to be stoned to death. So they knew the punishment of not obeying God's word, but they couldn't see their own faults in that. But Stephen's death was the catalyst for the fast growth and the fast spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire. His death is really what set things on fire and in motion for the gospel to spread so quickly. Has there ever been something in your life that was maybe a negative event or a sad event, but that in the end kind of changed trajectory and brought positive, uh, a positive event or positive endings? That might be a bit of a confusing question. And I'll share a story to kind of Uh, show that what I mean here. When I was 12 years old, my Opa passed away. Um, My mom's side of the family uh, is the only family I have in Canada. My mom and dad were both born in Paraguay in South America, and my dad's side of the family is still there to this day. And so I was very close to my mom's side of the family, and we gathered very regularly as a family for any excuse to have a family gathering. And when my Opa passed away, it, it was hard. It was the first family member to die uh, in my life, and it, I, I took that really hard because we were close. But my mom came home after cleaning out some of his stuff from their apartment, and, and she brought home this guitar. And she said, hey, in his will, he wanted a grandkid to learn how to play guitar. Now, I'm, fairly one, of the, I'm the, one of the youngest cousins in my whole family, and f- some of them already know how to play guitar, and including my older brother knows how to play and so I, you know, okay, sure, I'll learn how to play guitar. We'll see how this goes. So I took lessons, how to learn, how to learn how to play, how to learn how to sing, and I learned how to, to even lead worship. My opa's passing was a sad event, but it brought and it changed things for God to use me for his ministry. It was also at this time, when I was about 12 or so, that I was hanging around the wrong friends they were dragging me away from God. And I was letting them at that point. We would go and we would sneak off and, and we would go and, and smoke. And some of them were drinking already at that age, which was crazy to think about. But that death and in, in, in that grief that I was going through, I turned back to God and I found him again. And that event changed, some, changed the course where my life was heading. its kind of what I mean here by my question. Maybe there has been a sad event or a negative event, but because of it, it changed the direction for your life for the better. Stephen's death was awful, and it started a rampant persecution of the Christian church, but that persecution is what spread the gospel message quickly in the Roman Empire. Because of that persecution, Saul, who we see here at the end of chapter 7, gets the okay to start grabbing everybody and throwing them in jail. Men, women, and children, they would arrest and not really have much of a trial. And because of that, people were fleeing Jerusalem, and they were running away. And that's where, in chapter 8, we meet this man named Philip, who has left Jerusalem But has not left the gospel message behind. And he heads into Samaria. This fulfills the second part of Jesus' command, which is in chapter 1, verse 8. We'll get there in a a second. But this persecution helps spread the gospel. God would bring great results from the believers' suffering because of this persecution. So people fled, and they ran away from Jerusalem in all directions. And with them, they brought this gospel message. Now, the Jews in Jerusalem did not get along with the Jewish people in Samaria. I'll do a bit of a quick history lesson here, and so I don't want to lose you. <laughs> but the, the Jews in Samaria, if we go back to about 700 B.C., we find that the kingdom of Israel is divided in a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom because there was feuds and other things that went on. The northern kingdom was the kingdom of Samaria, and the southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. Now, in about 700 B.C., the Syrian army came in and took almost everyone captive and took them away, except for the very poor people that were left behind, the Jews, some of them super, super poor. And then the Assyrian army, or the king, brought in foreigners to repopulate the areas. So these foreigners then married these Jewish people left behind, and it was this intermarried race that was called the Samaritans. And the Jews in Judah called them half-blood, and they didn't believe that they were true Jewish people because of that. And they were a mixed race, and because of that, there was these feuds back and forth, and they did not get along, they did not mix but Jesus commands them, he not only did he go and visit Samaria, we read that in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, but before Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Ye will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now he could have just said Jerusalem and Judea, which was the region that Jerusalem was in, and then the ends of the earth, but he specifically mentions Samaria because he knows that if he didn't say it, people would probably avoid it because of that generational bitterness between them. But because of that command, because of this persecution, we meet this man named Philip. And so Philip goes to Samaria. This is not the same, this is not the Apostle Philip, this is a different Philip that we meet. But So he flees. And he takes with him this messianic proclamation, this gospel news, this good news that was already spread in Jerusalem. And the response that Philip finds in Samaria is enthusiastic. Philip is significant in Acts because he's the first recorded person to bring the gospel news outside of Jerusalem. Among Philip's converts was a sorcerer named Simon. Simon performed many signs and wonders and wowed lots of people around him. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 12 to 13 those in Samaria, in this town, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. It goes on, and when the apostles heard in Jerusalem of what was happening in Samaria, they sent Peter and John to go and pray over them so that they would receive the Spirit. And so we pick it up in verse 22. When Peter and John come and they pray over these people, and Simon sees that the Spirit is enabling them to do great signs and wonders, and Simon comes up to them and he says, how much do I need to pay you to have this power? How much do I need to give to you so that I can receive the Spirit? And in verse 22, Peter says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he might forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are still full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen. I find it interesting that Simon's response is the exact opposite of the Sanhedrin's response. They're both confronted with their sin, and they're both, it's both brought out in the open, and the Sanhedrin picks up stones to kill Stephen for these accusations. Whereas Simon's response is, pray for me. You're right. <laughs> I'm still full of sin. Pray for me. How often should that be our response? You know, I, I know personally when people have come to me uh, in my past and said, hey, I think this is an area of idolatry in your life, or I think this is a sin that's captive in your heart. Our response naturally is to be like the Sanhedrin, to gnash our teeth and to yell at them, right? When we're confronted with our sin, we don't want to hear that. But Simon's response, pray for me, is something that we can learn here. Something that we can learn from a sinful man, just as we are sinful. From this, Philip then has an encounter with a high official in the Ethiopian government. At the prompting of the Spirit, Philip leaves Samaria, and he heads south, past Jerusalem, headed for Gaza. Before long, he encounters a distinguished traveler, And that was an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this is not modern-day Ethiopia. This region was south of Egypt along the Nile River. And it was a long distance to travel from Jerusalem to there. And we pick that story up in, in verse 26. I'll read through it. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I put a map there on the screen so we can follow along. It can be a little confusing. And he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near. So Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Philip then said, Do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I? said the eunuch, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Then Philip began and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he gave the orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. There's a lot of towns listed there, so that's why I put the map up. It helps us understand maybe a little bit in context. This is probably one of my favorite stories in Acts, uh, this chapter really, because of Philip. But what I have always found fascinating is that last verse, or the last two verses, that the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and he appeared at Azotus. Now, I don't know about to you, but to me that sounds like teleportation. We're not gonna really get into that today. <laughs> but I've always found that super interesting. Why did God take Philip like that? He could have, again, spoke through the Spirit and said, just go up to Azotus, like how he told him to go down to Gaza. But he didn't, and we're not really sure why. I had my studies this week, I was going through, I'm like, I really, I really wonder why, do we have any answers? And I open my study Bible, and going through it, and it says, why did God do this? I'm like, That's my question. Didn't, didn't really help much this week. But maybe God moved Philip in this supernatural way to strengthen Philip's faith, and maybe even to strengthen this eunuch's new faith. Now, it says that this eunuch was in Jerusalem to worship, and so there's a good chance that he was there for Pentecost, which we talked about last week. And that was, of course, where the Holy Spirit came. And so now this eunuch is traveling a great distance, From Jerusalem down to Gaza, and he has stopped, and Philip is there, and he says, Do you understand what you're reading here? What can we learn from Philip in this chapter? I think our biggest takeaway from Philip is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. He was sensitive to go to Samaria and to pray over those there, to go to that city and to pray and to preach about the gospel, and when it was time to move, he moved. When it was time to stop and go and talk to this eunuch, he stopped and went and talked to him. And then God took him to Azotus, and, and so he continued on his way up to Caesarea. I think this is the biggest thing that we can learn from Philip, is to be sensitive to the Spirit's leadings. It's not always necessary, necessarily about reaching that destination that we're called to. Philip never got to Gaza. We're not sure, exactly sure where he ended up, or how far he got, but he didn't reach his destination that God called him to, because God was calling him for a purpose along that journey. I think sometimes we need to slow down and take it easy when God is calling us to something, not to be lazy in it or to be, um, to not answer God's calling. But to take time to discern and listen to that calling and where God is leading us. I know it can be incredibly frustrating sometimes along that journey. This week on Friday, we went for haircuts, and uh, Aaron's cousin is a hairstylist, but she lives north of Camrose, and so we took the drive and we spent the day with them, and some family came. And on the way home, it was okay, well, you know, we left around three, we should get home for dinner time, it'll be good. I'm like, oh, we need gas. Okay, well, I'll just quickly stop in cameras and grab gas. And then it was, well, while I'm here, there's, you know, there's a, a Whole Foods store there. I should go and pick up supplies for youth because that's starting. So we went and got supplies. And then all of a sudden it was 4.30 and we were still stuck in cameras and, and the kids are now hungry. And I just wanted to get home. <laughs> I just wanted to get, I was like, you know, in my head, this was going to be a 10-minute stop in Camaros, not an hour long. But sometimes in our spiritual walk with God, that happens too. That God calls us into different places along that journey because he's using us through that journey. You know, we're going through this right now, even as a church. We don't have a lead pastor right now. And I know some of us probably just want to get to that end. I've had quite a few questions this week. Has the board found somebody yet? Have they hired someone yet? I said, no, we're we're taking things slow. We're seeing how God is going to lead us through this journey and teach us through this journey. So where is God taking you right now, and how can, you have been, how can you be of great impact along that journey? See, when we witness for Christ, we don't always see the outcome either. Philip didn't get to go with this eunuch to uh, this region of Ethiopia to see how his ministry was going to go. Never talks about that he even goes there at all. Sometimes we're along this journey with people merely to plant seeds in their hearts and let God reap the harvest like he always does. But when we witness for Christ, we simply only need to share the reason for our faith, the reason why we believe in Jesus. Stephen was killed for his testimony of Jesus Christ, and people here in Linden hopefully won't kill us for that. But they will let us know, whether wherever we go, people will let us know when they don't want to hear about him, when they don't want to hear that truth. My encouragement for you is to keep honoring God in your conduct and in your words. But along these journeys, along this, this journey of life as we go through, as we walk with Jesus, I pray that our response is similar to Philip's, that we can be sensitive to the Spirit's leadings. But I pray that we can also have the response like Simon when we're confronted with sin in our lives to have that response of, you need to pray for me then. You need to pray for me. And how much can a response like even that eunuch, well, how do I, I don't understand this. Can somebody explain this to me? We're not meant to go through this faith journey alone. We're meant to gather together as a church like we are doing today, to walk through it together, through the highs and through the lows, to pray together, to ask for prayer from each other, and to go to each other and go, do you understand what this means? Because I have a lot of questions. Why did God teleport Philip? I'll invite the worship team up to close us in worship today. What I want us to take away from today to be that like Philip. To be sensitive to the Spirit's leadings. And so when, God's move, when God moves, let's talk about it. When our prayers are answered, let's share that. When miracles do happen, we need to shout that out. But when hard, came, hard days come, when we find ourselves in the midst of the valleys, we need to gather together continuously to pray for each other, to support each other in the highs and in the lows. As Christians fled one town and went to another for safety, they never stopped talking about the reason for why they were running. Is this not our mission as well, to never stop talking about Jesus? We are here to share the good news, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, and to share the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. To love God and to love people. Let me pray. God, again, we just thank you for this, this morning. That we can come to you in worship. That we can come to you in your word. God, I pray that you have spoken to us this morning whether we need to slow down along our journeys to see where you're leading us, or whether we need to have a response like Simon when we're confronted with sin, or when we have questions like the eunuch and we just need somebody to explain things to us. God, would you bring people along our lives, in our lives, to not only help us answer these questions, but so that we can be part of that teaching as well, God, I continue to pray that we will be sensitive to your Spirit's leading. Not just today, not just this week, but always. Nor would you speak to us today. Pray your truth will land on our hearts, that your word will land on our hearts. That whatever it is you're trying to get through to us, God, that we will just be able to stop and listen. God we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for those that have come before us like Stephen and like Philip who have spread your gospel no matter the circumstances, no matter the outcome. God would you make us bold like that that no matter we go, no matter where we go that we would share your good news. That we would not be ashamed of your gospel. Lord Jesus, guide us and direct us this week. We pray in your great and holy name. Amen and amen.